This is episode number 191 with Arthur Haynes. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? I just wanted to quickly remind you that if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Mine is Himalaya. For those of you that have not heard of Himalaya, it's an epic brand new podcast app, which has so many awesome and unique features no other podcast app has, like episode and channel playlists. It's free, so easy to find new shows, and is really user-friendly. So head on over to the app or Google Play Store to download it today. Don't forget to follow me once you're done so that you can listen to my episodes one day earlier than they're usually released. Pretty cool, huh? This episode is brought to you by Uveda. As you guys know, I'm obsessed with Ayurveda and Uveda is an epic, heart-centered, family-owned Ayurvedic company with a larger-than-life vision to create a healthier, happier world using the intelligence of Mother Nature. Now, I truly wish that none of us needed supplements. But in this modern world, with the depletion in our soil and with the full lives we all lead these days, sometimes our bodies need some extra love and support. This is why I love Uveda. They are such high-grade, Ayurvedically developed supplements to support not only your body, but your mind and soul too, helping you rebalance and come back to homeostasis, which is what the body wants. I love their mood supplements and love how they come in individual packs, perfect for someone who travels as much as I do. Now I've teamed up with Uveda to give you, the Epic MA Tribe, 35% off your first order. So all you have to do is head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash Uveda, and that is spelt Y-O-U-V-E-D-A, and you can get your 35% off your first order right now. Arthur Haynes is the author of several books and articles on human health and nature connection, including A New Path and Ancestral Plants, Volumes 1 and 2. He is a forager, ancestral skills mentor, public speaker, and botanical researcher, and he advocates for a return to our biological norms regarding diet, movement, community, and child-rearing. As a plant biologist, he has authored over 20 publications in peer-reviewed journals and books. He runs the Delta Institute of Natural History, where his popular classes focus primarily on foraging, herbal medicine, and ancestral lifeways. And in today's episode, we chat about his story and how he got to where he is today doing the work that he now does. What is nature divorcement and how to get back in touch with nature? 
how to limit blue light and EMF exposure, the importance of sleep and how to hack your sleep for deeper rest and relaxation, what is forest bathing and how you can do it, the power of essential oils, how to return to our biological norms and what that means, what is a conscientious omnivore, the power of herbalism, wild foods and foraging, how to cultivate community, his thoughts on parenting, co-sleeping and smacking children, plus so much more. This conversation is epic and deep and very intelligent. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 191. But before we dive into today's epic conversation, I want to read the review of the week. And this beautiful five-star review comes from Justine Henderson. And it's titled, The Best Traffic Jam Medicine Ever. And she says, Melissa, I often commute by car to and from work. If I have to spend three hours in traffic to and from work, I love spending it with you. I arrive at work or home with a head full of knowledge and a heart full of joy. Thanks for filling my ears with goodness. Your podcasts have transformed my commute and my life. Keep going. Retirement is still a way off and I've got many miles to go and plenty more to learn about living my best life. Love, Justine. Justine. Thank you so much for that beautiful review. I'm so grateful that I get to commute with you every day to work and from work. And don't worry, I will keep doing this show because I love it and I love doing it for you. So without further ado, let's dive into this epic conversation with Arthur Haynes. Arthur, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to dive in today. But before we get started, can you please tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? (laughs) Well, first, thank you so much for inviting me on your show. I really appreciate you sending that out and uh, letting me be part of the program that you're developing here. I had for breakfast acorn flour pancakes this morning. They include about a 50-50 mix of acorns that we gather and leach here and a sprouted buckwheat flour. And we top them with maple syrup that we make from sugar maples here on our property. Oh my gosh, yum. Can I come for breakfast tomorrow, please? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you may. (laughs) It'd be a long journey because you're in Maine, aren't you? Yeah, northeastern North America. We're We're in Western Maine here, which is where the mountainous part of the state is, which is a really nice place to be. Fast-flowing streams and some very deep lakes that, you know, hold some wonderful fishing. Mm, Well, I'll I'll be there in a few days then. (laughs) Okay, so can you tell us about your story and how you got to where you are today doing the work that you now do? Well, for me, it has become a journey more and more about wanting to have connection to the place where I live. So much of what we do in the world today is really based on 
kind of a disconnection from a place where we're all attempting to do many of the same kinds of things, no matter what landscape we occur on. And this is sort of the industrial society that we find ourselves in. And I'm just really excited to dive into my local place. And that has come about through the study of botany. I do work as a plant biologist. And through the study of ancestral skills from anyone who will share from anywhere in the world and learning how to apply those skills to this place. There was a time in my life where wild foods were something that you did in a survival situation. And that has slowly become something that occurs to us here on a more daily basis. As I've studied nutrition and ancestral diets more and more, I've come to understand that this is a really important thing that humans need to engage in as much as they can. You talk a lot about this nature divorcement. And were you living in a city before you moved to Maine and wanted to reconnect with nature? No, I've been very lucky, Melissa. I grew up in a very small town. You know, my graduating class had under 100 people, but that was from 30 townships, not not just, you know, for the 30 miles around, but 30 different townships. It, it serviced over 100 miles in every direction, essentially. So I grew up in a very rural part of Maine, uh, without any large cities and lots of access to nature. I'm very, very fortunate in that regard. So talk to us about nature divorcement. You know, I find even myself over the past couple of years, I have just been so drawn to getting out into nature, to getting back to nature. And we recently finished renovating our dream home, which is very much in nature. And so we have moved out of the city and moved into nature. And I get woken up by the birds and the ocean every morning. I go to bed every night, listening to the waves crashing on the the shore and listening to different little insects buzzing outside my windows. And then I wake up every single morning with the birds, with the sun coming in. We don't have any curtains or blinds on our windows. So I wake when the sun decides to wake and, and feeling that sunshine and the moonlight on my skin at nighttime. And then when I wake up, it's just been one of the most beautiful things that I've experienced over the past couple of months since being here. So how important is it that we get back to nature, that we reconnect with mother nature? Well, I think it's becoming known just how important this is now that a lot of researchers are turning their attention toward this. I mean, this idea of nature divorcement, of spending time away from natural habitats, and I I describe these places as places where there's lots of cooperative connections between many different species. In other words, there's lots of animals and plants and bacteria, fungi, and so on, interacting with each other that create these really complex environments. If you think about you know, the inside of our home, it's geometrically simple. There aren't textures, there aren't a dizzying array of different levels of branches and vegetation. Things don't change much throughout the seasons, and we're supposed to be immersed in habitats that are extremely dynamic. In fact, it may be really important for the development of our brains, especially as young children, to be 
immersed in this kind of complexity. Nature divorcement is something that I think that people don't always realize how profound it is in humans. Here in the United States, Melissa, 90% is the average amount of time spent indoors by people living in the United States. So the average time is 90% indoors. And this is just an insane amount of time in what I call the constructed environment. It's a less dynamic and a less diverse environment. When we think of nature divorcement, we just think, oh, we're not outside. We're not, we're not immersed in a landscape. We're not hiking or maybe foraging or doing anything of those, that kind of thing. But nature divorcement really rears its head in many ways that people might not think of. For example, the ability to just have quality sleep is often based on us seeing lots of bright light during the day and then having, you know, dark, unlit environments at night. And that, you know, essentially, we live in a dim place because we're trying to light it with indoor lights. And then at night, we're lighting up our habitat. Even that is a kind of nature divorcement that comes back to affect our immune system function and and even affect cancer rates. Yeah, wow. People often come to our house and at nighttime, there's no lights on. Like we'll have one little light on or one little amber bulb. And people like, where are the lights? Like, why aren't you turning the lights on? And it's it's just something that we don't do because we understand what that blue light is doing to our bodies. It's so important. I can't believe that 90% of our time is spent indoors. Like, it's just, that's, that is crazy. And I know for me, you know, I live in a treehouse. I'm surrounded by trees and greenery out of every window. It's absolutely beautiful. And right on the beach. And it's it's one of those things I'm consciously always trying to get outside, get outside, get outside as much as possible. But what are some of the things that we can do? Like how can we incorporate this, especially for someone listening who may work nine to five in an office job? Like how can we reconnect with Mother Nature? How can we turn that 90% into 10%. Right. It's it can be really hard for people particularly like you describe an office job setting where they might not have the ability to work remotely from home where they could maybe easily take abundant short breaks, you know, every 15 or 20 minutes getting up away from their work desk and just walking outside briefly and and sort of engaging with that natural setting. I just think it's important that people realize that this isn't optional for human health. It's really important. There are so many studies that have looked at this now of people just taking a walk in a park compared with people walking into, say, a busy shopping center. One study, for example, from 2009, it was done by the University of Essex in England. And people that participated just in a short outdoor walk, sometimes these walks were only five minutes. You saw 80% of the people reporting and experienced a reduction in fatigue. 92 experienced less depression. 70% had clarity of thought, in other words, less confusion. And 56% had more vigor at the end of their time indoors. They compared this against people who had spent time indoors and you got higher reports of depression or absolutely no change from the stress that they were feeling. And all of this comes back to us with 
you know, blood pressure and immune system function, heart health, and so on. It's really something that isn't an option. It's our biological norm. These are the habitats, if you will, that humans were evolved within and evolved to live within. And it's something that we have to try to find a way to spend more of that time outdoors. It does not have to be in the wilderness and it doesn't have to be, you know, for long extended periods. Humans get amazing benefit even from short time away from that constructed environment. Mm, Absolutely agree. And no one can debate the fact that you feel, how you feel once you've been in nature, whether it's hiking or at the beach or wherever it is, mm-hmm. how do you feel when you, at the end of that hike or at the end of your beach session, what it does to your soul and to your nervous system, you can't deny that. You know, when we go camping for one night, it feels like I have just had a 10-week holiday. It's like my whole nervous system. It's very rejuvenating. Yeah, exactly. It's so rejuvenating. And I want to get your thoughts on blue light and obviously Wi-Fi and technology. Obviously, these are things that are so common. And now with 5G coming out, what can we do? Like, you know, we know that and we've had so many people on the show talk about EMFs and technology and the blue light and what that's going to be doing to us. And in 10 years time, you know, they'll say it's it's what smoking did, you know. It, no one thought smoking was yes. bad. And then 10 years later, it was like, um, actually, yeah, it's really bad for you. So, you know, what are some things that we can do to really limit the harmful effects that those, that, that EMFs and that blue light have on us? Like, what can we do? I mean, we take some very simple strategies that many people, if they want to, would be able to participate in. You know, of course, we make sure that our screens are shifted toward those red and orange wavelengths in the evening, things like flux, because let's face it, we, we, we may all like to be wild all the time, but here we are communicating, you know, through a computer system, through the internet, and many of us at, you know, to some degree need to use computers in our living to earn income, to order the things that we might need for living. And so we're really careful to make sure that our computer screens are following the pattern through the day. They're trending toward blue light during the day to stimulate us to be awake. And then they're going toward those softer lights, those reds and oranges that would be mimicked in, say, moonlight and evening fires. You know, here at the home, we don't use Wi-Fi. We, we do have internet. It's through a satellite. I need this for my work. I need this to be able to communicate with you now. But what we have done is we simply have a splitter and we wire the computers. And we do that so that we're not emitting EMF through the entire house. And you can even get shielded wiring to make sure that there's no EMF coming off this. We turn things off like this at night. Our phones, we live remote. So the only phones that we can possibly have here are smartphones that are using, you know, a signal as opposed to being a landline, which we don't have access to. And those go on airplane mode at night so that we're trying to create our our sleeping chamber. I think you'd really love it, Melissa, my wife and my daughter. We have a room that we sleep in and this room is wood, floor to ceiling. There's no plastic. We have, you know, organic cotton sheets and wool blankets. 
These are expensive, but we considered it really important. So we saved our money and put them here rather than into gadgets and other things that we didn't need. There's only one outlet at the far side of this room. So there isn't even electricity in it and lots of big windows to let that moonlight and starlight be able to come in at night. It's the closest thing to this burrow that you could possibly imagine that is just shielded as much as possible from all of the ways that we light up our rooms, whether it's visible or invisible, you know, spectra that can all disrupt our sleep. Mm, Yes, that sounds like our bedroom. We've got no, it's literally just beautiful stone floor and then Mm. a beautiful American white oak Samina sleep system, which Mm -hmm. is just amazing. We actually discovered Samina's through Daniel Vitalis. So we invested in a Samina sleep system. Are you familiar with them? I am. I'm. I'm. Daniel is a friend, and I have seen his many times. And it, I mean, it looks absolutely wonderful. And I, I think I'd like to point out because I know that because these are expensive, there are many people that often really speak poorly about these kinds of things. And I mean, we spend a third of our life sleeping, and it's really important for our immune system, for our happiness, for our health, to make sure that we're having the best quality sleep possible. And I think people are simply used to just spending next to no money at all and are not reaping the benefits of really high quality sleep. I mean, what we're sleeping on is a natural latex mattress. It's just tree rubber. And we feel that was really important too, to get away from the flame retardants, to get away from the synthetics. And we're on a sleep system that just really benefits us. And I I think that people who might immediately jump to being a little critical about the cost of some of these things should consider how much money they have spent for their waking hours and their sleeping hours are just as important to their health. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Eight hours every night. And that's when all the rejuvenating, the healing, the detoxing happens. And, you know, we had spoken about investing in a Samina for about six years before we actually did it. And yes, it is an investment, but people spend more on their cars and you're nowhere near in your cars as much as you are in your bed. And it's so important. You know, I've noticed such a huge difference in my sleep. You know, I used to have lower back pain. I would wake up every single morning with lower back pain every single morning without fail. And that doesn't happen anymore. And I'm, I'm just, yeah, it's, it's, another, it's another world. Like once you've slept on one, you're just like, oh my gosh. But what I also wanted to chat to you about was, I love the fact that you've created this beautiful wellness sleep sanctuary. And the same with us. We don't have any gadgets. We don't have anything. We have one plug for an essential oils diffuser which I obviously turn off, but I I put that on before we go into bed. So we've got some beautiful lavender in the room before we go in there. But yeah, we sleep with the windows open. There's no blinds. We get the moonlight. It's actually quite funny because when the full moon is here each month, it's a lot lower and it's beaming into our bedroom. And the first time that we slept in there and the first full moon that we experienced, 
I woke up thinking that someone was shining a bright torch in my eyes. It was so, (laughs) it was so bright. It was so bright, so much so that I couldn't sleep and neither could my husband. And we were like laying there at 12 o'clock and we had this torch in our eyes and we were like, what are we going to do? Like, we, we don't want to get blinds. Like, what are we going to do? And to be honest, like that night we had to wear an eye mask. But then we were just like, no, this is how we want to sleep. So we got used to it. And now we're used to it. Like we just had to kind of almost reprogram our system to be used to that sort of beautiful moonlight, you know, kissing our skin and, and on our eyes. And now we, we're fine with it. But every month it does come around. We're like, whoa, that's so bright again. Like we forget every time. But it's so beautiful to just wake up and see that literally right in front of me, like right there in front of me. I'm like, yeah. and I talk to the moon. I'm like, hi, moon. Like we have conversations. It's beautiful. Could could I add just one thing? Because you mentioned something that is really important and I'm not sure how valuable people know that it is. You mentioned that you have an essential oil diffuser that you use. Yes. And this is another thing where there's been research that has looked into forest bathing which you may have heard of where people are simply spending time in a forested setting. And one of the things that has come out of this research is the understanding that when we're in wild areas where there are lots of plant species present, they are releasing chemicals. And these chemicals are called phytoncides. And it's a kind of a crazy name, but just think of them as aromatic compounds that are released by the plant that serve as defensive compounds for the plants. The reason I'm mentioning this is because research has shown that these things that we breathe in almost unconsciously that we are exposed to continuously when we're in a natural setting are of massive benefit to us. They enhance the functioning of the innate immune system. They have shown that there is greater clarity of thought, that levels of stress hormones decline. Even the people who were exposed to these phytoncides had greater memory function and concentration than those who weren't. And the wonderful thing is essential oils are a way to be exposed to these things. In other words, you could bring cedar and pine branches into your room that you could smell, or you could use essential oils to do that. And they're extremely valuable to your health. And again, this is evidence-based research that's demonstrating this. You touched on this really important thing that I wanted to make sure that your listeners understood can be really valuable to them. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you, which is why I love essential oils and I get the best quality that I can. We can link to it in the show notes so people can get themselves some essential oils. But what are your thoughts on having the diffuser running throughout the night? Because what I do is I I put it on before I get into bed and close my bedroom door so that it's all kind of nice and beautiful and smelly in there when I get in there. But then I turn it off. Would you keep that going all night or would you not bother? Oh, no, I think what you're doing is exactly appropriate. Just absolutely perfect. Okay, cool. And another thing I wanted to remind everybody of, and I've said it so many times and I feel a little bit like a broken record, but I'm going to say it again. Turn your Wi-Fi off at night. Turn your modems off. Completely turn them off. Like we do this every single night and we've done it for years. And we even sometimes do it during the day. We're actually working on 
wiring our whole house so that we don't have to use the Wi-Fi. We're doing that at the moment, which is something that I'm really excited about so that we don't have to have Wi-Fi. But another thing, rewinding a little bit, I wanted to touch on this. We spoke about Flux, which is really important to have on your computer. And also the new iPhones now have a setting that you can take out the blue light. I think it's called night mode. So I have night mode on my phone all day. Some people look at my phone and they're like, why is your screen orange? I'm like, don't worry, don't worry. The only time I'll ever turn it off is if I'm editing a photo, if I'm you know, wanting to see what an image really looks like. So that's the only time I'll turn it off my phone. But during the day, it's always on night mode. And it has been scientifically proven that when you have the blue light not on your phone, you're less likely to pick it up as much because it's Jack Cruz talks a lot about the blue light being addictive. And so when we have the orange light on, we're less likely to spend as much time on it. And also on my computer, and I'm not sure if this is correct. Like I have flux on all day long. So right now I'm looking at my computer and it's got a beautiful ambery orange tinge to it. And I leave that on all day because I don't want to be staring at that blue light. I find it really offensive to my eyes. So I just wanted to remind everybody of these little hacks that we can do that will really make such a difference. Mm-hmm. So. Another thing that you are really passionate about, you're a massive advocate for returning to our biological norms, especially regarding our diet. So let's talk about that. Well, it it really comes down to people coming to an understanding, Melissa, that humans, like every other animal on the planet, have biological norms. We have things that we have evolved to exposures that we can handle, exposures that we can't, kinds of foods that are good for us, kinds of foods that aren't. And I mean, everyone, I think, understands this idea of a biological norm. We know that a moose, a member of the deer family here in the Northeast United States, is adapted to a very different habitat than, say, a camel of the Asian deserts. And if we switch those two animals neither animal will thrive in its new environment with its new diet. Many people really believe that humans are capable of transcending their biological norms. But every time we make really drastic changes from what we have evolved to, we see people suffering. And we see them suffer incredible rates of chronic disease, sometimes acute health issues, digestive disorders and gut dysbiosis, altered sleep patterns, depression, suicide, and so on. And it's just really important to recognize that there are things about our diet that we really shouldn't mess around with, to put it in a really blunt way, and that it's important to understand that things like nutrient density and diversity of our diet are, are just really important. And, and a lot of dogmatic trends that we see happening right now really stand in contradiction to you know our evolved patterns. So what are some of the things that we can do? Well, we certainly need to keep in mind, first of all, that, well, I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Every hunter-gatherer group that has ever been observed, and I mean ever in the world, have always been 
omnivores. They practiced omnivory. And that's really important because plants and animals give us not only different kinds of nutrition, but even different kinds of certain vitamins or different kinds of certain minerals like heme iron versus non-heme iron between animal and plant foods respectively. And we really need that full diversity in the diet to have not just health and longevity. I, I think it's important before I go any further to let you and your listeners understand that I'm not looking for longevity. I'm, I'm not here to live to be 120 years old. What I'm looking for is intergenerational health. And that just means that the children that I father and that my partner fathers, or excuse me, my partner mothers, are, are as healthy and as well-formed as possible, that that nutritional status of the parents has been transferred to the next generation. And there are many diets that we can embark on that can keep adult humans alive. But in order to have bright, healthy, well-formed, active children, now that's a higher standard. And so these things that I'm talking about, like omnivory as one of the first ones, are the kinds of things that have been observed in people who were able to do just that. They were able to pass that health on to the next generation. What do you mean when you speak about the conscientious omnivore? Well, I, I am talking about a person that, that does not participate in any way, if they can help it, in any kind of factory farming. I'm not talking just about animals, but I'm also talking about plants. I don't make the strong distinction that some people do. To me, factory farming of any species is terrible for this planet. It's terrible for the organisms that are involved, and it's terrible for the people who are eating that food. We, we know that there are some really barbaric practices that are done on animals. But the same is true of GMO Roundup-ready soybeans that have been grown at these extreme densities that are covered with glyphosate, this, this Roundup herbicide that's used to keep them free of competitors that all enters our foodways, our food systems. I mean, this is just as barbaric. So the, for me, the conscientious omnivore is someone who is thinking about where their food is coming from and really trying to do best practice, regardless of whether we're talking animal, fungal, plant, bacterial, that they are trying to get their food from ethical sources. And that can include the wild. And perhaps this is the most ethical of all because the wild plants, animals, fungi, those are species that were never under the yoke of domestication. That's not available to everybody, but for those that that have access to this, this is the the most free range of all that exists. You know, I think a lot of people listening as well don't realize the power they have when they vote with their dollar. And if we mm -hmm. want to see these shifts, if we want to see, you know, if we want to support these organic farmers that aren't using Roundup and aren't using glyphosate then we have to go to the farmer's markets and we have to shop there and your, your dollar counts and it really will make a difference. And if we want to see this shift, we have to stop buying the farmed 
chemical-laden produce and animal products. We have to stop buying it. That is how we make a stance. And it all starts with us and our own dollar. Yeah, I mean, these foods, I mean, obviously, this is not necessarily a practical reality right now, but it is a theoretical reality. These foods are only produced because people buy them. And if we stop buying them, they will disappear. And by that, I'm talking about these chemical agricultural farms. They will disappear overnight if everybody demands organic and and, and similar kinds of standards where people are trying to do their best to raise clean, nutrient-dense food, which only benefits people to a great extent, but it also benefits the planet because the healthier the humans are, the less resources they end up using trying to return to health through the medical systems that we have established. Being healthy protects the planet. I love that. Being healthy protects the planet. It absolutely does. And I just really want to encourage everybody listening to remember that your dollar counts. You are voting. And if we want to see this shift, then we have got to make that shift within our own family. And it's just if we want to save the planet, if we want to see these shifts, then we've got to do it. So important. It's really important. So Another thing you talk a lot about is herbalism and wild foods and foraging. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of that? This is a, this is a big one, and, and plants really do act as a gateway to wild foods in a, in a positive way, as opposed to something that's like a gateway to more drug use. I mean this in a really positive way. And, and the thing is, is because in many places, plants do not have the strict regulation that many animals do through hunting seasons and permits and things that that can be really overwhelming at first, not to mention the gathering of the plants are not necessarily raising the same emotions for people. They're not as graphic. And while I think that we still need to be extremely respectful of these organisms and simply because we believe that they can't feel that that means we can do anything we want to them, I don't want to I'm not trying to go down that road, but I'm only saying that foraging for wild plants is a place that people can really get involved in wild foods. And I would love your listeners to be aware that there is a large body of research now demonstrating that wild plants on average are superior in many ways to the cultivated plants. They tend to have greater levels of vitamins and minerals. They tend to have more fibers and less sugars. And there's always exceptions to some of these things. They tend to have better ratios of essential fatty acids. In other words, they tend to be skewed more toward the omega-3s and less toward the omega-6s that we see in some real grain-based diets that are found around the world. And they're also, and really importantly, they are much richer in plant compounds that we call phytochemicals. Wild plants have to fend for themselves. And in doing so, they upregulate these compounds to fend off pathogens, whether they be viruses or fungi, to fend off insect herbivores, sometimes even mammalian herbivores. And many of these compounds turn out to be really valuable to our health. They upregulate our immune system. They fight cancer. They prevent cancer. They benefit our vascular health or our heart, our immune function, and so on and so forth. One of the big ones is that many of these compounds are anti-inflammatory 
So they help us fight off those stiff, achy, and arthritic conditions that a lot of people experience later in life on a diet that's very rich in cultivated foods. Now, what's happening is as plants were taken out of the wild for cultivation, we changed them. And we changed them through breeding to give us greater mass, more sweet flavors, and less bitters, which has its own drawbacks to us. Those bitters are often antioxidants and benefit our digestion. But we never look at this breeding for what it is. It's a form of genetic modification that's taken place over many generations. And what we see is plants have lost their phytochemistry in part through their breeding and in part because they are tended by humans. When we protect plants from pathogens and from herbivores, the plants don't have to produce the same amount of phytochemistry because we're taking care of that job for them. And unfortunately, we get less of it. So now, foods that would have historically protected us to a great degree, say, from UV radiation so that skin cancer would not be something we'd need to be concerned with, well, now the foods that we're consuming are are simply not doing that. Some of them have lost their seeds, for example. Think of grapes. It's a great example. We know that grapeseed extract has all of these benefits to us, yet our cultivated species mostly lack them. And so a very deep reliance on these highly modified foods, foods that have changed very much from their wild progenitor that they were derived from, tends to lead to chronic disease. And that's something that has been shown in the research over and over again. Yeah. Wow. So interesting, isn't it? So interesting. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Another thing that you talk a lot about for health and happiness is community. And I feel like now more than ever, we're very, we're living very separate lives. So how can we cultivate more community in our life? And why is it so important? This is a a really hard one for me to sum up in a short <laughs> in a short soundbite and I'm going to try to do the best that I can. It's really obvious now with a lot of different cultures coming together with very diverse beliefs and sometimes very strong opinions about how people should live, what they should believe in, how should they go about their lives that we're just experiencing a lot of stress from this. We are historically come from communities where people function together with the same worldview. They approached problems in the same way, and they all cooperated toward a common goal. This infighting was simply less common. Now, for the moms out there, think about this. We know now that with the nuclear family being the core unit that humans interact with their world in now, that frequently moms and dads are left to care for their children alone. And this creates a tremendous amount of stress for people because no one is supposed to be with children 24-7. They had aunts and uncles and grandparents and relatives within the community who would help with that childcare and were happy to do so. You know, it wasn't asking somebody for this deep favor. It was an expectation that that was going to happen. 
And we know that in these historical communities of hunter-gatherers, there were things like obligate food sharing, where they had diverse strategies to make sure that food that was gathered was shared equitably amongst all of the members of community. We now live in highly competitive societies where people, even sometimes within their own families, are competing for the same job or competing to be able to buy goods and services before other people do. It's not our historical norm, and it's quite damaging to our emotional health. Finding community is one of the absolute hardest things to do in modern society, because even when we are able to grasp small pieces of this through groups that we might be involved in, we eventually disengage from those communal experiences and often go back to our homes. Here, we're trying to just initiate it essentially from scratch with strangers who are trying to come together to live in a way where we're all interacting with the land and sharing in the jobs that we need to do to enjoy our living here. And and it's really difficult, even when we all want the same thing, Melissa. I, I want to just share a definition that I use of what historical communities were like, and just to see how difficult this would be to achieve today. So a community is a small group of people who reside, sometimes loosely, on a given landscape. They share common resources. They experience equality and similar affluence between the genders, even though they may each do different tasks, and can operate by consensual decisions due to similarities in beliefs for the benefit of the group to accomplish living in their place. That is the definition of community that humans used to experience. It comes from reading anthropological reports. And you can see if you follow through on that definition, how hard that would be in a competitive, hierarchical, and, and, and unfortunately, often patriarchal societies that we find ourselves living within. So what can we do? How can we cultivate more community? Because, you know, I've often thought, and this might sound so crazy, like we, where we've just moved, I've often like thought, should I just go knock on my neighbor's doors and like introduce myself and, and say, Hey, I've, you know, I've just recently moved here and like, I've really thought about this because I want to cultivate community. I want to walk down my street and know my neighbors. And that's something Mm -hmm. that I really want to cultivate here. So what can we do to cultivate more community? How can we do it? And I mean, for me, ideally, it would be in a close proximity for where I live, ideally. But maybe that's not the case. I don't know. What can we do? How can we do this? Well, for me, I find that sometimes what I have to do is I need to find people that I can engage in some of the practices of our ancestral communities. We might not live in the same location, in the same home. We might live an hour apart, but we're going to participate in as many aspects as we can of what historical communities did. So we're going to share resources. That might mean inviting each other over to share wild food meals or meals that have come from the supermarket where everybody feels really good about that food and they understand that what is being shared is a real gift to their health. 
We might share other things. Uh, I have a friend who we share some of our financial resources between us to help each other out. And it obviously, when we're giving and sharing in this way, humans feel amazingly good about this. Find people that you can treat genders and really importantly, and ages as equal. Children are not our subordinates. They are sovereign humans that just because they're in our care don't mean that we're supposed to have rights and privileges that they don't have. Find people that you can operate by consensus so that you have a similarity in worldview so that you can you can just enjoy being surrounded by people who think like you do. Now, today in the business setting, this kind of echo chamber it is seen as a really negative thing because they want diversity of thought. But when it comes to living on your landscape, there's already a way that indigenous people have figured out this is how we get food from this landscape in a way that is sustainable and does not harm the landscape. And having everybody on board and wanting to use those practices instead of just coming up with something new that no one knows how it's going to work is really important. And in that group, no matter what it may be, it could be a group that's trying to uh, protect a parcel of land. It could be a sports group, whatever it is, do your best to not let hierarchy form. Everybody hates being bossed around. We experience it a lot. We see hierarchy in, in practically everything that we do in this day and age, and it is not our biological norm. We are supposed to live in egalitarian cultures where there is this equality throughout. And I think it's really important to find ways to at least get pieces of what human communities have. I mean, the big one, the, the word community comes from the Latin communis which refers to things held in common. And the one physical item that was held in common by all of our ancestors was the land. Everybody had agency to be on that land and derive the things they need for survival from that land. And that's really difficult for people to attain today. But these other things that I've mentioned, like sharing resources and treating genders as equal and operating by consensus and without hierarchy, those are things that can be incorporated into a music group, a sports club, you know, any, anything where there's a group of people that have come together. And in those settings, try to get as much of our ancestral community together as you can. Mm, I love that. We often bring people together to share a beautiful feast and a lot of our community, our friends here, they all share the same health and food philosophy. You know, it's all as natural and organic as possible so that when we do come together, it's a real experience. We all hold hands, we bless our food, and we really do enjoy that time together. And it's just reminded me to do that more often. This has really been such a beautiful reminder to do that more and to share it with people who value that same, that have those same values. And you spoke a little bit about children. I want to hear your thoughts on child rearing. Can you talk to us about that? Well, I will say, Melissa, that the things that we practice here 
really do stand in stark contrast to the kind of parenting that I received as a child. And I'm not trying to claim that my mother was an evil or vicious person. She was simply practicing what the society at large told her was necessary. You know, for example, we know that when we let children cry it out alone in a room where we're trying to break the connection between infant and mother, that this creates an immensely stressful situation where the brain is, that developing brain is being flooded with stress hormones that ultimately impacts IQ in the adult. And, and evidence shows this. And, and so that kind of, I mean, my daughter is five and we're still co-sleeping. She's afraid of the dark and there's no amount of rationalization and logical discussion that's going to change that. She's a young person and still an emotional being. And I respect that. And I will be sleeping with my daughter until she decides that she's ready to leave the bed. Striking is simply not something that I'm ever going to do. That's here in the United States, seven out of 10 parents agree that this is an appropriate thing to do to your child. And it's straight up bullying. It is a larger, physically dominating person using force or the threat of force to change the behavior or to get something that they want. It, it, hitting children as a punishment meets every definition of bullying. And then when they go to school and bully people, they get in trouble for it. And it must be so absolutely confusing to them. You know, if I were to say strike you, I could be arrested for assault. But if I strike my 40 pound daughter, it's considered acceptable. Mm. And to me, that is a very warped <laughs> worldview to be supported by a society. I can't even fathom how that has come to be the case. Another good example, Melissa, is that we treat our child as sovereign. They have all the rights and privileges that we do as adults. We understand that lecturing doesn't work with young people. So we try to create experiential ways of learning. And one of the best examples that I love to use is the wood stove. Here in Maine, we're heating with a wood stove for five or six months of the year or, or some other method because it obviously gets very cold. There's snow on the ground right now. And the wood stove is extremely hot and people can be burned really seriously. You can tell your young child, over and over again that the wood stove is hot, don't touch it. But they still simply never understand because they have no experience with what that can do if they contact it. So you create safe experiences for learning. You let the wood stove cool down most of the way so it's still hot, it's uncomfortably hot, but it can't burn them and you let them touch it. And it's an eye-opening experience for the child and now they understand what you meant. The words alone, they just don't work with someone who's a year and a half, two, three years old, but it's the experiences. So we're really big on letting our child experience the world. And that does mean sometimes that they fall down, that they get hurt, that they get scratched, that they get scared. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're going to let them fall off a cliff and something that would be you know, a mortal injury to them. But it does mean that they are allowed to make mistakes. We don't helicopter parent because that experiential learning 
is a really key part of human development that is being robbed from people when parents are, oh, don't do that. Oh, be careful of this. Watch out for this. That That's simply not useful. It shields the child from, from living. And so these are just a few examples of the lessons that we can draw on from our ancestors and hunter-gatherers who reared their children in a communal setting and how they interacted with their children. And we're just trying to mimic that to the best of our ability because, again, it's what human children are evolved to experience. Mm, So important. I love all of these insights on parenting. It's really beautiful. What are your thoughts, though, on you know, when you want to really encourage your child to eat healthily, you know, this is something that I hear a lot from a lot of mamas. They want their children to eat healthily and the children have tantrums. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's really hard because my daughter, for example, does experience two different homes that have two very different lifestyles and two different diets, it makes it really difficult. Uh, She grew up eating a high proportion of wild foods, but that has changed for her in the last couple of years. And you do run into those things. Uh, Frankly, it used to be much easier. There was this food, there is nothing else available because your landscape gave only certain foods at certain times of the year. And everyone realized this is what's available and there's nothing else. As, as people living in the modern world, especially in financially affluent countries where we have access to some of the most amazing produce, for example, year round, and children come to understand that this is available, it makes it super difficult and you do see those tantrums. Fortunately, our daughter is getting old enough that we're able to discuss with her and get her to understand even even the idea that the way she eats now is going to affect the health of her babies. And that's not something that you can do with a super young child or a super young child that doesn't have an understanding of how nutrition impacts their health. But we do our best and we understand that, no, we don't want our child to go hungry. But at the same time, there are certain things that we're simply not going to acquiesce to. And if you persist and you persist in a caring way and in a patient way, we found that that works the best for coming to a resolution around the dinner time. This is a real struggle, and I really empathize with all the parents out there that are dealing with this. Mm. Eventually, they'll get hungry enough and want the want the vegetables. Yes. <laughs> okay, so. If you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world, besides your books, <laughs> what is one book that you would choose? Oh, my word. I'm, I'm not even sure. That's such a great question, and I have never considered it in my life. You know, I, I think that if you asked me this question and gave me 10 minutes to think about it, I would come up with a very <laughs> different answer. But I I think that I would really lean toward a book that gave very practical ways of interacting with the wild. And that could be, I'm not going to pick one book because this has to be place-based. It could be a foraging book for your area. And obviously the parents could help with this and the plant identification and so on. 
The reason I say this is humans are really practical. If they don't think that they're getting anything out of being outdoors, they're not going outside. They're happy to spend their time staring at screens or just looking for leisure indoors. But if there's a way to go outside and get delicious and nutrient-dense food, sometimes that really invigorates people to be outdoors. It becomes a passion of theirs. And and getting a really good age-appropriate foraging book in the hands of students So now they understand, oh, there's a direct connection. I spend time outside, I get to eat. This is the way humans are right now. We we want really obvious, direct reasons for why we should go outside. Finding these some of these delicious fruits or root vegetables that we can dig from the wild might be a way to help inspire people to spend more time outside. Maybe not, again, the answer that I would give if I could think about this longer, but it's what comes to my mind, a book that would try to make obvious the connection between being outdoors and how the outdoors, how nature can benefit you. Yeah, I love that. I think it's so important. I have a 13-year-old stepson and every moment I get, I'm like, okay, time to go outside, time to go outside. Like I'm just constantly trying to get him and my husband to go outside, to play outside. Whenever the option is there, I'm like, you guys have to get outside. You just, whatever chance you get, it's just so important. I'd love to hear now though, do you have a morning routine? I love hearing about how people prime themselves for the day and how they set themselves up for a successful day and how your day unfolds. I love hearing about this. So can you talk us through your day and in particular your morning routine? Well, my morning routine does start with observing that first light that comes with the sunrise. And I don't mean to say that I always wake up. I might go back to sleep. But my body tends to wake up when that sunlight is first beginning to make its inroads in the dark night. And I, and I really love seeing that. Greeting the sun is something that's really important. It is one of the creators of all life on this planet, the interaction of the sunlight and obviously what's here on this planet make this life possible. And so greeting that sun is really important to me. Before I launch into work, I have an outdoor walk, and it might just be a very short one, sometimes only a couple of minutes. But regardless of the weather, regardless of how cold and how windy or how raining it is, I have a short outdoor walk to to sort of stimulate that alertness to come fully awake and to be able to embrace that day. And obviously, it starts with hydration, with good, clean drinking water, and food often that we've procured from our landscape. And when you start your days in this way, you really do have a tremendous amount of gratitude going forward. And sometimes it gets hidden by the stresses and struggles of the day and things that come up in your work life or on social media and things, but it's always there in the background, being able to anchor you in a place of feeling well and having gratitude. And I just think that's a really important place to begin the day with. Yep. I love it. So important. I try and always start my day with a swim in the ocean and it's so beautiful. I call it my aura cleanse. Nice. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? I am. 
Okay, what is one thing that we can all do today for our health? You can find what I call minimally modified plants. Find plants that look closest to their wild progenitors because they have more of the nutrition that the wild species do. A great example, we know that blueberries, cultivated ones, look really similar to wild ones. And as it turns out, they have much more of that chemistry still available in them. Raspberries are another good example from this climate. Wild and cultivated ones look very much the same. This would be in contrast with things like eggplant. I'm not claiming that's a bad thing to eat, but the what we find in the supermarket looks absolutely nothing like the wild form it's derived from. And so find those minimally modified plants to really boost the amount of phytochemistry that you're getting in your diet. Such a good point. Really good point about the eggplant. I love that. Okay, what is one thing that we can do for more wealth, so more abundance in all areas of our life? I define wealth as meeting our needs. And I bet that you have a really similar belief that that wealth is not solely defined by the amount of money that's coming into our bank accounts. And meeting our needs, we do this in part through developing a greater skill set to make our own clothing create our own medicine, find our own food from the landscape, or grow it someplace, even if it's not on our parcel, but a friend who allows us to have a garden plot. Meeting our needs requires us to have more skills. To be, It allows us to be a more sovereign and autonomous human. And for me, that's wealth. Mm, beautiful. And what is one thing that we can do for more love in our life? <laughs> Forgiveness. And, and that often comes with also forgiving yourself. I don't believe that the things that we have done wrong in our, in our lives should just be forgiven away without apologies and without deep reflection, but forgiveness is really important. While I was under the influence of an entheogenic plant, in fact, the first entheogen I ever experienced I was given a vision of what humans looked like when they were riddled with guilt. And we moved around in these really crazy, jerky, ungraceful manners because that guilt was just holding us down and preventing humans from being able to be athletic and and just so graceful about the way that we're able to be in this world. And guilt and carrying those feelings of guilt, the really the only way to get rid of them is to do the work so that forgiving yourself and others is something that you can do with an honest heart. Mm, beautiful. I love that. This has been so beautiful and so many great nuggets of wisdom that I've taken out of it, and I'm sure the listeners as well. But before we go, is there anything else that you want to share? Anything that you wanted to mention that maybe I didn't ask you or any last parting words of wisdom? You know, Melissa, I really liked the approach that you carry here on this podcast. And I really would suggest to people to find others who are doing the same and to surround themselves with as many people who want to go through life improving their health, living more softly with the land. 
having a better relationship where possible with the indigenous people that may live in their areas and just really changing their whole relationship and trying to disengage from this tremendous current of the industrial society that sometimes is just taking us in some really terrible places. Surrounding yourselves with people that have that same level of exuberance and and like you, they're trying to do these good things, which does require us to also be critical of how we live. It just means that you get to improve as a human. And, and I just think that's really important that we should all be on a path of growth. And we need to grow in a lot of different dimensions, uh, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. And to me, this is one of our major goals. I mean, humans have this unique ability to celebrate existence that seems to be you know, very different from the other creatures that we share this world with. And I don't think that that celebration comes without a responsibility. And that responsibility in order to meet that requires growth. And so I would just offer that as parting words. Mm, beautiful. And one more thing I want to ask you, I'm a massive believer in service and you obviously are in service to a lot of people with your work that you do, your books, everything that you do. So how can we serve you today? How can myself and the listeners serve you? Well, that's a really nice (laughs) question. And uh, I really appreciate you asking me that. For me, a lot of this A lot of this stuff that I'm doing and the things that we've talked about and trying to have a different relationship with the planet so that we're living in a more sustainable and perhaps even rejuvenative fashion with with this planet, I don't really do it for me. I'm doing it for, it's still kind of selfish perhaps, but I'm doing it for my children and for my family's children and my friends' children. I'm really trying to look toward the next generation. And I would love if everyone would take that on, that their goal is to make sure that this planet is left in no worse a condition than it was when they entered it. And perhaps it's left in an even better condition. Admirably, that would be the goal so that our children get to experience the same wonders and excitements and the same beauty that we may have been able to experience in our life. And To me, if people were willing to do that, that would be absolutely wonderful. Mm, Beautiful. Yeah, that's my goal, to leave this place one day in the best possible shape that I can. That's, That's my goal. So thank you so much, Arthur, for the work that you do, for this incredible interview, for your time. Keep doing everything you're doing. And if I find myself in Maine, Maybe I have to come and visit you and Daniel and I want to eat chestnut pancakes with you guys and maple syrup that you've made. Hell yeah, that sounds delicious. I'm sure you'll like it. It would be great if you ever find yourself in the States. We can set you up with a nice place to be and some really great food that comes from this landscape. Oh, sounds beautiful. Well, thank you so much for everything, for your time. This has been wonderful, and I really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me again, Melissa. Wasn't that awesome? I love Arthur and just think he is so intelligent and wise. 
And I got so much out of today's episode. And if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And don't forget to come and join the MA Tribe private Facebook group where you can share your insights from this episode. Plus, you can tell me who else you want me to get on the show. It's also a very sacred place where we can come together to discuss all things mastering your mean girl and open wide, along with anything else that you feel called to contribute to the open and honest conversation. You will also get some extra love and support personally from me that I won't be offering anywhere else. And one thing that I get asked a lot is where can I find my tribe? Where can I find like-minded soul sisters? This is the place. So head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash tribe to join now. It's totally free. And for everything that Arthur and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 191. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. Another thing I wanted to mention before I go is that if you haven't got my latest book, Open Wide, A Radically Real Guide to Deep Love, Rocking Relationships and Soulful Sex, all you have to do is head to melissarambrosini.com forward slash open wide to get your copy now. And you will also get access to my free Open Wide video masterclass that Nick and I created specially for you. And if you want to be the review of the week for next week, make sure you head on over to iTunes and leave me that five-star review right now. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You seriously rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot. You can share it on your social media. You can email it to them. You can text it to them. Do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.